Occasionally, I have this dream where suddenly, through some circumstance that isn't quite clear, I am on a stage in a play and I don't know any of the lines. It's like right before I went on, I had a chance to read them once, but now I'm on the stage and I'm expected to be able to perform this role in this play and the audience is sitting there and the scene has begun and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do or say. There's not much more to the dream. It kind of ends right there with me facing certain failure and humiliation. My guest today is T.J. Jagodowski, who knows all too well the terror of being on a stage and wondering what his next line is. It almost ended his career. Ironically, he overcame it by doing something even more terrifying, if you ask me, creating a life on stage where he himself decides what the next line is. Most people probably know him best as the dim passenger side half of the Sonic commercials duo, He and his commercial partner, the great Pete Gross, have been at it for about 14 years now. 14 years. That's unheard of in the commercial world. Only toilet paper pitchman Mr. Whipple comes close. But the best part is that this good-paying gig has allowed TJ the financial freedom to do what he loves the most, and that's improvising with his partner David Pasquese. As half of the great improv team of TJ and Dave, every week he co-creates a brand new stage experience totally made up in the moment. An hour-long, one-act play discovered right then and there on the mission stage at I.O. As Stephen Colbert once said about TJ and Dave, one of these guys is the best improviser in the business. And the other one is better. And it's hard to believe watching TJ on stage that he is the same performer who so struggled with anxiety and a strange case of vertigo that threatened to end any chance of his being a performer at all. The condition, exacerbated by the anxiety of performing scripted material, ended his time on the stages of the Second City and Second City ETC, made him incapable of doing the job. And yet here he is now, years later, at the top of his game, his game, doing a job that so few can do well and that none can do as well as him. Also on the show today, comedy from the Hog Butcher radio players and a song by the nearly angelic Jenny Bieneman. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio. I mean, do you think because you're an improviser, you can handle... Since most of life is improvising, are you better equipped to handle... Any given situation? No. No? Not at all. Like, I would think you would have the ability to be in the moment and and process things and react quickly. Yeah. In, why wouldn't that translate, <laughs> that skill? Uh, it's, I don't know. There are things that I am very comfortable with on stage that I'm entirely uncomfortable with in real life. Like, what do you mean? I'm just an anxious, anxious person. I need to know, like... Well, what am I doing at two? Like, what's wh- when is this happening? How many people are going to be there? How long are we going to have to be there? Like, where is this wedding? You know, and like, what time does it end? <laughs> um, and you know, like all of that stuff that I'm really finicky about in real life. Like, I'm comfortable on stage. Like, I don't know where we're going. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know where it's going to take us. I don't know who I'm going to be. Um, I'm not. I'm not at all comfortable with that. <laughs> in, I guess in that makes life. sense. I really would think though that. Like, I think, you know, people, a lot of people take improv not to become performers or whatever, you know, right. like for their own reasons. Right. And 
among those, I would think, would be the ability to think on one's feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some people like it for public. I remember in my early class at Second City, some one guy was a teacher and just wanted to be more comfortable in front of his students and um, often would hear like, oh, I'm a, I have to do speaking for my business right. and I'm bad in front of a crowd. And, you know, like that's why that's why uh, they were they were doing it. Um, and, and yeah, like but you, the more you do it, you realize like, Oh, it's not at all about being quick on my feet. It's about being honest. It's about like actually listening and reacting. That I might have gotten better at. Um, and and if I'm better at anything, the only times it applies to real life is if I can just calm myself down and be in 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 the moment. Then um, then I'm a little then all right, I'm better. I'm better off. And I can do that usually with one person or whatever, but in a crowd or like if I'm at home alone, I'm not fine with just being in the moment. I want to know what the hell's going on. <laughs> how am I going to, how am I going to pass this next minute? It's <laughs> you know? part of the reason like it drives me crazy. Like I don't smoke anymore, but when I did, it was like, this is a great way to eat up about six minutes <laughs> to make time go away. I know, I, I former <laughs> myself, and I, 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 sometimes I still don't know what to do with those yeah, six minutes. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. And it, and like, and a I have Tootsie to keep, Roll Pop or something. Maybe, but like, what I have to keep myself from thinking is, then what happens to the six after that? And the six after that? And the six, and when can I die? <laughs> <laughs> so, you're painting a neurotic picture. I, I would say that's reasonably accurate. Yeah. And yet, it seems almost incongruous that you would find such command and confidence in, in in a situation where you're not only interacting with somebody, but you're doing it in front of an audience who has expectations. It, it, w- it would perhaps explain why I cling to that so strongly. For a little bit, I think I get to see what I could be like and am not. It'd be like Evil Knievel nerfing the corners of his coffee table. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'm just not that way at home. I wish I was, and I'd like to get better at it. And I I guess in ways I'm actively pursuing ways, you know, like to bring more more of that into my regular life. But... Yes, I would say I'm fairly neurotic or, or anxiety-ridden in regular life, and usually right up even in, until a show starts, and then it go, it tends to go away for an hour. So yeah, you just get for that period of time, you feel like free of who you are and and what those hang-ups might be. Yeah, yeah, I get you know it's like uh, you know flowers for Algernon or whatever you know for a little bit I sure. can see like what oh this is what I could be like. <laughs> And then it just gets it's such a sad away. movie. I wish you <laughs> it is. <laughs> Charlie wasn't right. that the name yeah, of the that movie? Was the movie yeah. Cliff Robertson. <laughs> so you and you and Pete do the Sonic stuff. Yep. And you've been doing that how many years? Like, uh, however long Dave and I have been playing, it's like a week longer than that. So I think it's it's either thirteen or fourteen. years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. With a, it, like, it with like a one year exactly break. with. I looked up an old calendar and saw that like two within two weeks in of like the first two weeks of february one was like go to arizona and shoot the shoot this commercial and then two weeks later i think it was do first show with dave so they're both about i think it's either 13 or 14 years now wow yeah that's unheard of for a television commercial campaign it's i think there was a year off where sonic 
change their chief marketing officer and the chief marketing officer switched ad agencies and so there was like a year when we didn't do it and then they brought us back a new ad agency brought back basically the old campaign and the old people doing it which also seemed odd but i think if we hadn't had that break i believe the the old ad agency was saying that we were getting close to like mr whipple <laughs> that we would have like passed don't squeeze the Charmin as far as like same campaign, same characters, same people but what, and wait, that we might have had a record. But, but just because it, the chain was broken? Because I think it would have been the record for like contiguous oh. stuff. So we might end up... You might still have more years logged. We could. Uh, and I was surprised it wasn't like... Was it Jesse White? Who was the Maytag before Gordon Jump? I think Jesse White was like the Maytag repair the guy. Je but wait, Jesse White, same name as the Jesse White Tumblers? Might have been. I know who you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like the kind of bulldog. Yeah, sure. I think his name was Jesse White. I don't know. And then know. he got, I think, replaced by... Gordon Jump, I from think. From WKRP. Yeah. And yes. now it's like a young, handsome dude who like... And I don't know his the name. the embodiment of the, of the appliance. Right. Um, but yeah, but he's a guy Jesse I would imagine like. somebody would want to have at their house because he's so oh, yeah. hunky. Yeah, he's a good-looking dude. But he's going it's more like that bounty uh, kind of guy right. in the cabin quality right. about him well, now, I guess right? They're selling. I guess they're probably selling to ladies, right? I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Um, unhappy, unhappy in their marriage. <laughs> maybe, maybe leaning on pills for a little bit of help. Is that is that the picture no, of the keep, American? Keep going. <laughs> the American. <laughs> house lady uh, I'm sure they would love to hear that characterization <laughs> so let, let's talk about how you, how you became so pr prominent because I'm in the improv scene I, I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, you didn't come to Chicago to do this because you seem like one of the people who would be like oh I want to be an improv so hence you, you come from Holyoke, Holyoke right yep, Massachusetts, Holyoke, Massachusetts yeah. and you left there to do what? Uh, I left Holyoke to go to college at Syracuse, and then I left after college to come here. I thought I was gonna work in television production. I had studied at Syracuse and gotten um, a degree in television, radio film production, and English. Um, although the day I graduated, it, it was like everything was <laughs> outdated. <laughs> we were <laughs> cutting up like, three quarter inch decks with you know like right. big wheels and stuff and 80 pounds of sound equipment and then film we were cutting film with razor blades and <laughs> i know and i remember that. pencils and stuff like um and so like this was gone you know um but i thought i was going to work in television production a great friend of mine named lisa haleski who does who did some did ad out here ads out here in production out here for a while and still does um, she was working on the Untouchables TV show at the time um, and said uh, that she could um, get me a job being a production assistant. And so I PA'd for a little bit. Um, and this woman, Lisa, like she's, I will eternally be grateful to this woman, Lisa. And uh, she let me sleep. She was a newlywed, let me sleep on her couch for months, months. And she had been married for a month when I <laughs> when I landed on her couch. And I'm not sure how long I was there. It could have been six months or something <laughs> like that. Um, and so she got me my first job PAing. She took me to my first show at Second City. She took me to my first show at Improv Olympic and she got me to um, like to enroll in classes all of these things. So she had a hunch going into this that you were going to want not just enjoy it but 
perhaps participate in it? She thought I'd be good at it. I had never heard of it. I'd never heard of improvisation, never heard of Second City, didn't know what any of this stuff was, and she wasn't wrong. That just seems impossible to me. You, If anyone seems to me like they had a calling of some kind for... It seems like you. It's hard for me to picture you being somebody who didn't even know what this was. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. making stuff up. Like and and had no inclination that I'd be good at it. it. Was never. I had never done a play. I hadn't done any acting. I, I wasn't in any like drama groups or or anything anything like that. Um, and so I mean the the I'm sorry. The only acting I had done is in like class film projects where you basically like someone had to run the camera someone had to be in it and someone had to write the thing and so you just filled in you know each of those roles but I'd never been like on in a play or anything like that um so yeah I was I was completely ignorant to all of it until Lisa showed it to what me. was the first show you saw uh oh it was take me out to the Balkans it was phenomenal um that show to this day is still like toured all the time like everyone still learns those those shows, um, those scenes. It was um, Carell and Colbert, Dave Rizowski, Jackie Hoffman, Fran Adams, Ruth Rudnick, and I think Scott Allman. Um, and, and I believe it was right after it had turned over where like Paul Danello and Amy Sedaris may have just left. And so um, it was it was phenomenal, phenomenal show. Yeah. And I think don't you in the book talk about a Colbert story where you were trying to relate that to him? Yeah. What's, what's that story? Yeah, um, we had toured. I was touring for Second City, and I had worked in the box office and stuff. And so um, during breaks, we'd go out to the bar and look at all the pictures of all the all the old shows. And they had show posters, these beautiful Bill Utterbach drawings of all the old all the old shows. And so um, I would take the mail up and just stare at him and look at him. And so I got to know some of the you know show titles in the old um, in the old archival archival pictures. And so now I was touring. We were down in Charleston, South Carolina, for the Spoleto. the The Spoleto Festival had a smaller, like kind of fringy festival called the Spoleto Piccolo Festival. And so we were down there with Second City doing shows and went to this party. And Colbert is from there and ended up at this at this shindig and. Um, was hanging out super nice and just regular guy and I said oh my gosh like Steven you were in the very first show that I saw you watching you is what made me want to do this and he said um, I kind of I usually forget the number but he was like oh that's a catch 28 for me and I thought like a fucking jerk (laughs) like this is the 28th person like he keeps a track of this and like knows how many people said this to him and he throws that in my face like <laughs> oh I never gets old I'm almost to 30 people haven't said this to me like you, you're you're an ass like it's what I thought I just smiled and like I have to go to the bathroom and then and then I'm thinking like wait a minute why does that sound familiar <laughs> <laughs> and it was the title of the review that he saw that that did that to him and um and it was it was so nice like that he he wasn't he was the farthest thing from being like you know like dismissive he was he was saying like that happened you know like that happened to me too i remember the exact show that did that to me right Um, and so yeah i think i think we've all had or you know many of us had that that moment where like oh my god this exists this can this can happen and he was in the show that did that for me so what was your experience then because you didn't you do a stint on the main stage and ETC? I did. I toured for a year and a half and then went to the main stage. And that truly is probably where I, when I think of the people who taught me how to do this, I think of being um, in that 
in that show, uh, directed by Mick Napier, and on stage with uh, Kevin Dorf, who is a huge influence on me and how to handle myself and the um, the the value and the weight you put on on doing doing it right. Um, and so yeah, I I went to the main stage and had this odd vertiginous experience and had to leave performing for for a, a while. Um, and then so this was something that I remember. We've talked about this. So you just had this sensation of vertigo that didn't yeah. just happen right in the middle, right in the middle of the show, right in the middle. Would of the it first happen act. at other times too? After that, it just never stopped happening. Okay, it, but it was a this odd visual experience where it was like the horizontal hold left, like the the whole world I was looking at shot through the floor, dropped back through the ceiling, wow. and then pulled back to a pinpoint. Where it was just like a, you know, like you, when you turn your TV off and it, the old TVs, and we just get to that little white, like light in the center and then zoomed back. Wow. Um, and so this was right, I had just finished, like a, I had a little monologue, and right as I finished, that happened. And uh, I had this, you know, after that, this massive sense of, of rocking in imbalance as opposed to the world spinning, you know, where I think most vertigo people feel like it's spinning. This was like a rocking and imbalance. And um, and the the worst part was uh, I had no idea where the hell I was. I had no idea if I had a line coming up. I had it was basically like the actors, the literally the actors' nightmare of like you have this dream that you're in a show or about to go, and you don't know any of the words or or where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to say. That was what was happening, and so I just waited for the lights to go out. Not sure if I missed a line, if I had anything else to say. And I walked into the wings, and and even when you're in the middle of the run, they just always kept the running orders up in the wings of of when you were doing a review at Second City. So I walked over and looked at the looked at the running order. I wasn't sure what scene we had just done. I wasn't sure what was next. I didn't know if I was in it. I and so I just stood there in the wings, hoping as the lights came up that I wasn't in the top of the next scene. And I guess I wasn't. That scene started, but still had no clue of what the hell was what the hell was going on. Thankfully, I was at a part of the running order when I didn't have much to do. I think I only had one line left in that act. And by the time that scene came back, I sort of remembered where I was and what I was supposed to say. I said that line, and then an intermission just went to the hospital. They they took me to Grant Grant Hospital. I think Grant yeah Grant Hospital still. That's the one that's closed, right? It used to be, yeah. 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 So they took me to Grant, and they diagnosed me with vertigo. The cast did a five-person second act. The people just picked up my roles, or they, you know, um, I'm not even sure what they did. Worked around it. Um, but from that day on, I tried to go back to work the next day, and that the anxiety that had that had been caused in me from that experience I would go into like basically just panic attacks as sure. the show started, and so Jack McBrayer was my understudy. We would we would be backstage at you know eight o'clock show at seven fifty eight, dressed identically, <laughs> and him looking at me is like, "Well, is it you, buddy, or is it me?" And and after like two weeks of basically saying like, um, "I can do it, Jack," and he would show up every night, not wow. knowing if he was going on or not to help to help me. Um, and sometimes it'd be like, it's you, Jack. And so the rest of the cast, uh, because my entrance started that show, wouldn't know who was doing the show until the lights came up and they saw who was out, who was out on stage. Um, how long did that go on? I think it was like two or three weeks. And then it was like, this is too much. This is way too like, not only anxiety ridden, but 
it's too much to ask of Jack, and it's also an awful lot to ask of a cast of like, well, who's in the goddamn show tonight? Are you doing your job, or is someone else doing your job tonight? And so, I, uh, I, you know, um, basically just resigned, um, you know, with with thanks. And and the people at Second City could not have been nicer. From Andrew all the way all the way through, there was no pressure. There was no one saying like, shit or get off the pot, like figure this out. Um, Andrew sat me down and, and had a really nice talk about shared anxieties that he had. Andrew Alexander. Yeah. The second he's like, city. well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, like, I don't know, Andrew, I could pass out and fall down. And he said, so what if you do? Then we'll work, we'll figure it out when that happens. Like people could not have been Ni- it's pretty nicer. classy. He's always a gentleman. Awesome. Told me stories about um, John Candy and and that I guess John had huge amounts of anxiety, you know. And uh, he just, you know, he was he was he was really lovely. And and I was talking with Dorf about it not too long ago. He was like, "Do you do you ever remember them even coming in and saying stuff?" He's like, "I honestly don't, Kev. I really don't." He's like, "I think they let us just figure it, kind of figure it out." And so. Uh, at one point I walked into Kelly's office and said, this is, I can't, you know, I can't do this. And I don't feel good about what this is, the the position the cast is in on this. And, and I think I should leave. And I did. And then, sorry, I'm just going on. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. It was like, uh, I think a year, I directed one of the touring companies for a while. And then maybe after a year, a year and change, they said, would you want to try to do the ETC stage, which was, um, two fewer nights performing. There was a, there was, was a Thursday through Sunday, um, schedule as opposed to the Tuesday through Sunday schedule on main stage, and I was like, well, I'll, I'll, you know what, I I don't I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but if you're willing to take a shot, I'll give it a I'll give it a try, and then did um, then did that show, but basically without like the the without like the the visual thing happening all over again, it just the anxiety started to get the better of me, and so I think I did that show for like we opened it, nine uh, eleven happened right like maybe a month into rehearsals and so we scrapped the show redid everything to deal with the to deal with 9-11 and opened that show and I think I did the show for maybe a month after that and then left again and that was my last that was the end of my time at Second City and did you associate some of what you were experiencing with the fact that it was scripted material did you not have the same effect when you were doing improvisation yeah when there's Something about it being scripted made it so much more difficult that there were right and wrong things to say. And, and, and when, I, when I get really anxious about it, it breaks down literally word by word. That it's not even memorizing a sentence or a scene. It's memorizing it like there's one word in all the words of all the languages ever written that's the right one to say right now. And if you by chance can land on that right one, if you can get that one right out of the millions and millions of all the words, right after that, it starts over again. Out of all the millions, there's another Mm -hmm. one that you have to get right, and then another one. Now that's gotten you up to once upon a. (laughs) We're not even into the story yet, man. We're just getting started, you know? And, And so, um that's how like the anxiety would set on or i would say a line and then almost literally hear in my head like did you get that line right did you did you say that line right like yeah i think this conversation would go on yeah i think i did do you know do you know your next line like oh yeah i think yeah i think i do do you i think so well were you already supposed to say it oh man i'm not sure i was talking to you i wasn't listening to my partner they might it because it looks like they're looking like you didn't say 
your line and you should have said that line wow. maybe and and then we get to the point of like do you think you can walk off stage when this is over like you think you're gonna be able to walk to that door without falling i don't know and at that point it was like i don't know i don't know i don't know my words i don't know if i'm i don't know if i can breathe anymore you know like that w was what was going on inside my head for whatever reason when i improvise there is i think there is a more total engagement of the parts of my head that there's not that there's no room for that particular goblin that makes me doubt myself also I work with Dave um, and when I'm not with Dave I'm with other awesome improvisers who if I do screw something up whatever that means they're just gonna fix it um, right. and so the there's no pressure to do things right because I can't really do anything wrong. Right. Um, but I mean, you certainly you do. Uh, I mean, even with us, with we have the our web series, The Graveyard Show, and mm -hmm. the only other human being to be on it other than Chris Dolte from Chicago Fire and, and Dave is you. Thanks for thinking of me as a human being. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, well, well, that's it's true. You're the only, we've had other objects and. Uh, <laughs> Big potted plants. Yeah, we've uh, had that. Yeah. No human beings other than you. <laughs> Um, and that was scripted, mm -hmm. and you seemed to handle that effortlessly. Would that was I unaware that you were suffering from anxiety even with something like that? I did have a good amount of anxiety about it. Um, also, I did feel like um, less pressure in that. I think I could have said to you of like, "Hey, Ron, I'm having a hard time. Can you give sure. me a minute?" You know, um, Dave and I also ran it to a point where like we might not necessarily have been script perfect, but we got it to yeah. a point where like we felt okay with it. And also like if I drop a line, Dave's going to pick it up or you know, wait for me or right. whatever. And so the circumstances that were there were uh, you know, pretty much as kind as they as they could sure, be, right? Um, and it was like, well, if we screw it up, we're gonna we're gonna do it again, as opposed to like in a second city review sure. or that live where you like, if you mess that up, that's there. That's it's not getting cut out. You're not getting a second take. You're just right there in front of everybody, just flopping around, you know, without right. without your words. Um, so there was a, a decent amount of anxiety that went into memorizing because I think it was about a, like a four four or five page script yeah um but but the fact that it was you the fact that it was dave the fact that it was chris and that we could do it over did help a well bunch. dave has said that to me He's, when we've talked about doing other stuff that was at least based on a script um when i've asked would you think tj would be cool with this and he said i yeah i think i think the fact that it's you and me and yeah. then we'd be in that type of situation i get that kind of stuff i mean i've not to the degree you're talking about but i've dealt with a certain amount of anxiety uh, mm -hmm. issues, like some more kind of like protracted issues, I mean, protracted cases of it various times. And it's a strange thing how it takes over. Yeah. I mean, and, and a lot of it I feel, some of it I feel like I bring on. Yeah, I hear I mean, you. it's it's not, uh, which is not even to invalidate it, it. No. But it is, it does sometimes feel like, uh, I heard Jeff Garland talking about this once on a on an interview and he was saying he's gotten to the point with his anxiety issues where he can for the most part recognize it as like as almost like someone that's in the room uh -huh. and that as long as he's like i see you there i see you're sitting there, i'm not going to engage you right. you know right now and i understand that notion of I like that fine line between uh 
pretending it doesn't exist or admitting that it exists and but being able to kind of uh, ignore it or right or hold it at bay yes or, hold yeah. it at bay right um, but you're you're combining it with with everyone's nightmare which is you're in a play and you don't know what the next thing you're supposed right. to do yeah. is I mean I think most mere mortals look at actors who are especially things like you know a, just a big Broadway play or something like that and you think to yourself what are the chances that I'm going to remember I mean all, yeah, any all person right. to remember all I can't even I can't for the life of me think how or and then you see people in a one-man show oh, or something yeah. like that there's not even a cue what was it was uh home home uh forget it was a play at Steppenwolf where I think Amy Morton uh had like the first act I think was a monologue like an hour and 15 minute monologue like how can any human I, I don't do that. I just saw Laurie Metcalf on the uh, Louis C.K. show uh -huh. Horace and Pete's that he put on his website, which is a really fascinating thing to watch if you if you haven't seen it. But there's one episode on there. I guess this is a slight. Well, it's not a spoiler, but if you like to be surprised by every aspect of things, <laughs> tune out for the next <laughs> two minutes. But the first, I don't know how long it was. It was mesmerizing, but I would say maybe 20 minutes yeah. or maybe 25 to 30 minutes of it was just her so much. talking a shot just on her and you don't even know who she's talking to uh -huh. for about 20 minutes and then it's she's talking to him they finish their conversation he is sitting there she leaves and he's sitting there something else starts to happen and then he's just sitting there and credits came up and i remember thinking oh the thing's gonna start now <laughs> and then it was over and i said what happened there and my <laughs> wife said that was 45 minutes long <laughs> and i said really i mean because i felt like i got lost in it but she commanded the entire thing yeah like how can you even act when you're tr when you got to remember all that stuff? how can you like have time to act when you just <laughs> i don't remember know. what word comes next but you know i think other people would look at what you do and be equally or more horrified at the notion of I'm out on this stage I have no roadmap I don't know what I'm supposed to do and it's all up to me not to tank this thing yeah but it's not it's all up to Dave <laughs> <laughs> but he thinks it's all up to you great <laughs> if he wants to think that that's fine he's wrong um, but also like if we're improvising and I don't know what to say next I can just shut up that's fine, you know, like he's not waiting for me to say something so so that his line can get cued. You Let, know? Let's talk about how you met Dave and how how this partnership that you have has it came to pass. Mm -hmm. what, what when did were you first kind of uh We were one of the early Chicago Improv Festival. We had met one time in Second City. He did a set with us, but I didn't really get to like meet him, meet him um cuz you know, it's like yeah five minutes downtime and 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 so and i didn't improvise with them that that evening um the first time i got to actually play with them the chicago improv festival might have been year two or three there was a strike looming um uh i think like a writer's guild and maybe a sag strike um and so they were thinking that a lot of the folks who were working on snl or conan or mad tv were going to be able to come back and do shows because um, they would, you know, have been striking at the time. Um, and then the strike was, the potential strike was resolved. And so all these people had to stay at their jobs and they were looking, they needed to fill a slot for the improv festival. And so they called 
just they started putting out calls to people who were in town and not otherwise like busy with jobs and stuff. And Dave and I were two of those people. Um, and so that was the first that was the first time. And Dave actually the first kind of conversation of any sort of impact that we had had was standing in the wings of uh, and just trying to like you know admitting to our nervousness and trying to find some calm before we went out it was a big house it was at the Athenaeum and so it's just it's a big it's a big room for improvisation you know like we're used to cabaret and tables right up to the stage um and we had a really we had a really nice time uh, my friend Noah said you know it'd be interesting if you and Pasquazi were to do a show and then Noah Gregoropoulos day, yeah to this day neither Dave nor I remembers the phone call or who, you know I had to have called him neither of us remembers this we do we do remember meeting to agreeing to meet for coffee at Savory's down um, you know and where it used to be in Old Town, and we talked about improvising together, um, and then we did. I think that's about it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because Dave I, and I'm I'm guessing even when I first met Dave many many years ago, there was a certain he has a. I kind of kid around about it now, but you know he can be an intimidating presence. Yeah, I think accidentally. Yeah, yes, could yeah. be, yeah. but he, but he has that because I remember he was his stillness unnerves people. Well, I said, I, 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 he of course laughed at this, but I said, you know, back when he was just starting and he was part, you know, he used to kind of get around on his skateboard, <laughs> and he was, he was kind of the Clint Eastwood. Of the open, <laughs> of the improv scene, he, you know, he had that kind of, you know, he'd come riding into he town, and up. everybody would be like, "I hope he's using his powers for good instead of evil." When he comes, he will arrive on a pale skateboard. I would think, as an improviser like you, walking <laughs> at that point was was he somebody that you had a little bit of like, "Whoa, this is going to be yes." Absolutely, because he had also been like just kind of the stuff outside of just seeing him those two times. I'd only heard of him, and every improviser, yeah, he had knew a legend of Dave, you know, and like, and and it was it was like legendy. It was like you know Bigfoot or whatever of like everyone, <laughs> yeah. everyone knows the name. I say Clint like, Eastwood, you say Bigfoot, yeah, because sure. no one's seen him, you know. Like I think I saw him twice, but I don't know, you know, like but everyone's heard of Bigfoot and has stories, you know, like and Dave was kind of like that, like oh he's scary good dudes just like can read your mind and you know like um and i had seen him before we started uh improvising together i'd gone to stepmolf he was in glengarry glen ross at he the was time. and phenomenal and in, in this like locomotive kind of role where he's just like a badass and and it's know? the opposite it's such a precise script yeah, you know, broken down in syllables almost. I was amazed that a guy who was known for the one thing could be that certain. Yes, you know, and every move was certain, and um, and so and also I think one of the things when I say like Dave, un, his stillness unnerves people. Like it, he doesn't always give you when you're speaking to him, he doesn't always get give you any indication of how he thinks or feels about what you're saying. He'll just listen. And where like others, like a lot of people like smile or nod of like, right, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. He just listens. Yeah. And you don't know at the end if he's going to say like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Or I couldn't agree with you more. You don't know. And people will like talk themselves in circles trying to find a way to appeal to him. And then they're like, we'll walk away like, I just made a fool of myself. I just I feel so stupid. Like, 
And meanwhile, Dave might have been might have been about to say, "That's brilliant," but <laughs> they just talked themselves out of it. Um, so all of that combined, I was pretty intimidated when we when we first when we the our, our first our first few shows, you know. Um, but I would also say conversely, like improvising with Dave or being in conversation with Dave or um, just like when he smiles or or does not like the the warmth of the camaraderie that comes from working with Dave is equally like um, unlike being with anybody with anybody else you know like mm-hmm. um, when he shines he shines so brightly and when you feel like he shines on you you feel gifted to be in that in that company and so improvising with him as 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 intimidating as it might have been at the beginning it quickly turned to like just feeling privileged to be in that particular lamplight with him you know mm-hmm. Let, i'm going to talk about the process a little bit i don't want to get too you know but i did read this goddamn book i want to make use of this information long slog i mean to not i read the entire something, book something from it um <laughs> You, you guys go to great pains in the book repeatedly to talk about the fact that it's not about laughs. It's right. not about going for laughs. Right. That it's about um, finding something true, finding something honest. Um, the, the, I'm trying to figure out how I want to phrase this because there's actually two things here. that Because the other thing you talk about is the fact that there may in some sense be a scene out there waiting for you that you discover as opposed to a scene that you invent. Mm-hmm. And then I, well, I'll use this for an example and then we'll double back and analyze. But last night when I saw your show, I felt like the scene that you guys, it, it was ironic to me because I just read about a lot of this. It seemed that the scene that you discovered was more based in laughs to me mm-hmm. not that it was devoid of any truths or whatever but it was almost like you guys seemed to relish the fact that you were in a very playful kind of a scene mm-hmm. and is it you know you, you kind of set these goals for yourself in terms of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and and you don't want to be a slave to the fact that we're looking for jokes that pay off right but at the same time are there nights when that is what's out there yeah, I would say like um, I I would say if we look back at that at that show that ideally nothing was said for the purpose of getting a laugh, but a lot of the stuff we said might have been funny, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so it's not like we shy away from it being comedic, but we won't do that at the sacrifice of what we're doing seeming like it's still real. And so, um, I mean, there's a lot of different flavors of funny. And sometimes, like, you know, people laugh at the darkest shit. And with improvisation, I think because the expectation sometimes is like, oh, they're here to entertain or they're going to say something funny, that actually just saying something that feels real gets a laugh response Mm -hmm. just by it being clo- really close to what would actually happen. And for whatever reason, people find that funny. Like, that that sometimes a laugh line is just like, what's up, not much, you? You know, like, 
Oh, yeah, because that's how people talk, and for whatever reason, people laugh at that. And so in a lot of ways, sometimes a show might end up being come, coming off as funny, but if you were to read the script, there's nothing necessarily unusual in there. It would read like a pretty... Well, I think people are tickled by keen observations. Like, I've got a friend who does impersonations of other friends. Okay. But it's never the thing that you think it's going to be. Uh-huh. It's never like, oh, the voice or whatever. It's usually a gesture or a look or something like that where you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> that's him. I've looked at it a hundred times. <laughs> I, see it. I I just never pinpointed that that was the center of his being. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. I think when, pe- when you guys do that, when you take something that's so familiar, no matter how mundane... It, it usually comes from an angle that maybe the rest of us aren't looking. And there's a thing of recognition of like, oh, my God, that is how we talk. That is how we behave. That is what would happen in this moment, which is which does tickle me. Right. And and, and I don't know why, like because they, they would say like, oh, all of comedy has to go through surprise. But sometimes it's not unless unless the surprise is. I expected them to try and make this funny as opposed to I they I expected them to try and make this real. So the fact that they made it real is a surprise to me and I find that funny or you know what I mean? Right. Like cuz it's not surprising. It's mundane. Like Dave and I like when when we feel as though the shows have gotten too entertaining <laughs> <laughs> that perhaps we're perhaps it's become a thought in our mind and we don't want it to be a thought in our mind, the entertainment value of it. We remind ourselves to uh, dare to bore. Yes. Dare to bore them tonight. Like, um, And it, it's a reminder that uh, if don't, like, that being real, even if real is very usual and mundane, that's how we want to miss as opposed to outlandish or... Or trying to yeah worry about entertaining or laugh value in, in stuff. You do an hour every week. You're Can making you believe it up. The work schedule. You're you're you're, you're, <laughs> you're making it up. You know each time. Now, are there times when you kind of wake up in the middle of it and think, "We've already did this one. We already this is a this is in some sense a rerun of something." Are, are there familiar? I can't imagine how you could create something wholly new every week. Yeah, there. Whenever I feel that concern, I I get it out of my head because I I I've never felt like oh we've said this before. But there's only so many locations in the world, and because we don't end up like on a spaceship or you know in the center of the earth or whatever we end up in a lot of restaurants or diners or living rooms you know like but every home's got one you know it doesn't make that family's living room the same as anyone else's living room though so um i we trust that even though we're in a similar place oh also like we don't do we're not necessarily good at voices so i know i've played a hundred women whose voices are very similar but if I've done it right, they all think differently. And so even if we feel like this is a similar setting or like, oh, we're husband and wife again, which we had to have been a thousand times by now, 
this couple is still different if we play if we pay close enough attention um because you know like like i said i can't do a thousand different ladies voices so a similar timber is going to come out of my out of my mouth but if i have her mind right she's going to say or think things differently than anyone else than anyone else has and and if we if we really get down into it that Minute 42 is still determined by a logical following from the initial second that of the lights coming up. And if we're really following that moment, truly following that moment, every moment is going to be different and should lead us to a different, a different place. Um, so if there is ever a sense of familiarity, then it's like, oh, I'm driving again but I'm this person driving. And so um, I don't want to make choices for the sake of like, well, this person's got to drive different than the guy who drove last week, so I'm going to hold the wheel this way. That's equally, you know, like fold up. And we don't try and fold up anything. Um, and we truly believe if we're listening closely enough, this person will be different than any other person we've, we've played. I, I know, I, th I think it was Del Close who was always talked about kind of that the thin veil between you and the character and, and that in some sense, almost like movie stars, you, you always play a little bit of an extension of yourself. Like at least that's was what he was, I think professing. Right. Um, do you find that you and Dave, I mean, do you ever consciously try to shift types or do you find that in a sense, Dave is, even if he's not the same character, Dave tends to be a certain kind of character and you tend to be a certain kind of character? Um, I, I, I feel it sometimes. I mean, like Dave's dark and I'm light, you know, like literally in our just physical coloring, he's, you know, he's, he's got a more olive skin tone and I'm super pale. I'm blonde and Dave's, you know, raven haired and, right. um, he's more, he's more angular and I'm more rounded, you right. know, like literally right. just in our appearances. And so I think there is a little bit of a, of a, you know, like a yin yang to us. And I think David probably looks at the world through, um, perhaps more more cynical or clear-eyed. <laughs> uh, and I may have maintained a little more uh, naivete or uh, or hope, you know. Um, uh, and those probably do, I hope those do complement each other. I, I think it probably does benefit us in that we don't, for as much as we look at so many things about improvisation in exactly the same way, we don't look at a lot of the world in exactly the same way. And so when it comes to an exchange of ideas in our show, we probably have developed different points of view over, sure. over, you know, over our time of being alive that allows us to get into um, hopefully interesting discussions from well-formed point of views that do differ on certain on certain things, whether it's a relationship or whether it's, you know, um, you know, not that we ever get really political, but, you know, whatever, whatever it was, we probably, you know, if someone said lemonade, we probably both have differing opinions on, right, you know, right. on the value or, you know, moral, <laughs> moral worth of lemonade. Um, and that probably, probably does help us out. Um, but with, 
with with our show and this is always the most difficult part for both of us is that it may be required that we occupy each other's characters and um i can get sometimes the physicality he brings to a character right but i almost can never get his mind right because it is so david um and then that part even if i can get the voice and the stance and all that to think literally to think how he does about lemonade is a very very difficult thing to do so many of the people that you've worked with come up with the Jack McBrayers, the Kevin Dorfs, the, you know, they've gone on to do whatever network television shows yeah. and all that. And, and, uh, and yet in some way too, I'm sure there's some, there's a purity to what you're doing and a control that you have over what you're doing. That's not determined by a network or network bosses or any of that kind of thing you you've got your own thing do you ever think oh i wish i had done some of that or oh maybe i still wish i would i mean you've had flirtations with certain things right snl or any of those kinds of things what's your what's your where do you stand on all that how how does are you at peace with what you're doing versus what you know you might have done um yes yes I would say 98% of the time. I, I know as far as like something like SNL went, I as anxious as of, of a person as I am and even more so was at that time because that was not long after like having to leave um, main stage and stuff that the pressure of doing that job would have, I'm certain, had awful repercussions for me. You know, <laughs> right. whatever additional addictions I could have developed would yes. have been, you know, like really brought on by just trying to get through something like that. Um, and so every once in a while, like walking through Costco, I'm like, man, it'd be so cool to have like a best of TV, you know, TJ right. Jagodowski's 10 years of <laughs> SNL, like over there next to that Tracy Morgan one. But it's also a small sacrifice for being like sane and happy <laughs> right. and alive. Right. Um, and so I would say, you know, for that 2%, I'm, I'm okay with the 98% of how it turned out. And I would also say that I'm not necessarily done with that idea of perhaps doing something. Um, uh, Dorf, Pat O'Brien, and McBrayer and I worked on a little something together and shot a little something that um, that I think we're still going uh, to shop. And so I'm not adverse to doing those things, but it has to be a few things. It has to be with friends. It has to be something that we're going to like doing. It has to be um, almost entirely within our control of what, of, what it's, of what it's going to be. We don't have to sell it, but... It's got to be art. And, and if it's not going to be that, I'd rather not do it because I can move to Rhode Island and be pretty damn pretty damn happy um, as opposed to, like, knocking around in some shit show for the sake of saying, like, it's a TV show. Like, well, who cares? Like, everybody's got one now. <laughs> you know, like, uh, there's so much programming. I, I, I really don't know how anyone I know who wants one doesn't have one now. <laughs> like, because there's so much stuff, you know? Right. Um. And, and so it would have to be, like, for fun because we believe in it, and it'd have to be, like, a joyful working experience. And, and, and so I'm not entirely done with, with that idea, but um, I'm at a point, thanks to something like Sonic, which requires very little of my time, which um, pays well and gives me a ton of leisure time that I can afford at this point, at least, literally and figuratively, to do things that... Um, might be cool or exciting or um, I coach a new Herald team and I love it. It's one of the most important things to me that 
I do. I get so much from the faith that they have in me and showing up to with 10, 22 to 29 year olds who are really excited about getting good at improvising. That like that means the so much more to me than being on some like crummy program right now and having to live in Los Angeles and drag myself to a 10 hour, 12 hour day for the sake of keeping a, a show alive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, give me give me 10 people who really want to get good at improvising and I'm going to have a good two hours on Sunday. <laughs> you know, when I see you guys, when I watch your shows, you and Dave, one of the things that always is kind of mystifies me is that, that how the ending comes into place. And so much of the so much of that responsibility obviously falls on the gentleman up in the booth. Matt Higby. Who's got who's to hit the, the yeah. lights. And so last night I was sitting there and I, I start, maybe this is because, maybe this is sort of like my own like writer or directory <laughs> kind of thing. But I'm and like, lights. I'm like, and I, I want, there was, <laughs> and there was a couple of lines, like there was one line where you said the line make no sense. Anybody who probably didn't see it but was like, I don't want to think about, I don't want this to ruin fruit for us. And I was like, lights. And, and I, I can sense that internal clock of like 45 minutes has rolled around and you want to land it right. Do you guys, when you hit that about 45 minute mark, know time is about up, do you find yourself looking for like those landing lines no. or something like oh, that? No. No? No. Like it, until. Trying to find that perfect time to turn yeah. off the lights. Yeah. But here, here, this will make you never try and find a landing line. Well, I guess it's back to the grind. <laughs> yeah. And and go. Ah. Uh-oh. <laughs> that that feeling of like like you were you were done and boy, it's not over I, yet. Yeah, you know, like pulling the trigger on the lights and it not going out <laughs> makes you look and feel like such a total So you totally asshole. put faith in Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and he always gets it right. Like, um, I wouldn't trade, you know, I, I don't let this ruin fruit for us. I wouldn't, if that had been where lights came out, I wouldn't have traded that outline for a previous right. outline. But I also wouldn't have traded where we went out last night for, right. you know, don't ruin fruit for us. That's great that you have somebody up that, there that's, you then, know. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, he's he's always going to get it right. Because even if, even if he gets it on Dave, like, it, just imagine going out on Dave Turney and going, but you right. know, and lights on that. Like, okay, that's 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 that show. Um, sure. Uh, so yeah, you you can't it, like. Basically, it's how we want to die. Like, oh, I was planning on going forever, and then it just ended. <laughs> you know, like that's that's how the show is. Like, I was planning on living at, at this person until forever, but the lights went out. You know, like so that's it. That's all. That's all we get to do. <laughs> Next on the Hog Butcher Radio Hour, Hog Butcher Radio players Ed Flynn and Amelia Scott dig deep and bring us one from the archives. This is Jackie O. A tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy. Created and produced by Columbia Broadcasting System News for the Columbia Broadcasting System Television Network. I'm Charles Collingwood here in the Columbia Broadcasting System Studios in New York. Columbia Broadcasting System. And now we're joined live from Washington, D.C. by Mrs. John F. Kennedy, the third youngest of the 29 wives to live in the White House. Mrs. Kennedy, 
I want to thank you for letting us visit your official home. Oh, you're very welcome, Mr. Collingwood. Please, call me Charles. Oh, I wouldn't think of it. People might consider us equals. Charles? Charles, are you there? I... Yes, Mrs. Kennedy? I... I can't see you. I... I can hear you. Oh, I'm in New York. Oh. Am I in New York? You've begun a massive effort to restore much of the executive mansion. Why? I would say the main reason for the restoration would be the simple difference in taste between myself and my predecessor, Mrs. Mamie Eisenhower. I see. And how would you characterize Mrs. Eisenhower's tastes? Leather and firearms. Now, I understand that such an extensive restoration could cost quite a bit of money. Where do you plan on getting it? Oh, Charles. Asking where money comes from is very much like asking where the sky comes from. It's just always there, you see? But of course, Mrs. Kennedy. May I call you Jackie? No. Let's begin the tour, shall we? Certainly. These vertical planes you see all around us are called walls. Walls separate a large space into smaller spaces. These smaller spaces are called rooms. Rooms typically reside inside of most homes, and the executive mansion is no exception. Fascinating. Isn't it? Many of the most famous rooms in the White House are named for colors. Why, even the White House itself is named for a color. That color is white. As you can see here, we are currently in the blue room which was named so by James Monroe because of his curious biological dependence on liquid water. Just through this door... Uh, um, just... just through this door... Is everything all right, Mrs. Kennedy? Yes, well, usually there's someone here to do this for me. I, I suppose I might... Oh! <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you. This room we are in is called the green room. And then, down the hall, there's the white room, which is redundant, the room-colored room, and the purple, green, blue, orange, gray, white, violet, puce room, which some people refer to as the mural room. And then, of course, my husband's favorite, the red room. Does the president spend much time in the red room? Oh, yes, in fact. The Red Room is where my husband entertains many foreign dignitaries, as it is the only room with a full bar, a record player, and a mechanical rotating bed. Ah, well that's quite fancy, isn't it? If you think that's fancy, just wait until you see the executive bathroom, or... bathroom. Occupy! Oh, um, excuse me, Mr. Johnson. That's okay, little lady. I I'm terribly ignorant when it comes to bathroom etiquette, or... Bathroom etiquette. I am a woman and as such have never used a toilette. You in or you out? <clears throat> Make up your mind, Aquanet. You'll excuse me for a moment, Mr. Collingwood. Of course. Why are you in Now, where were we? 
This next room, the Lincoln bedroom. Am I to understand that this is the room where President Lincoln actually slept? That sounds right, but is actually wrong. The right answer is that no one knows why this is called the Lincoln bedroom. We just don't know. Coincidentally, all of Lincoln's possessions are stored in here. Next, we see the State Dining Room, which I have renamed the State's Dining Room, as it is more inclusive. Here, you'll first notice this piano that was originally designed and commissioned in 1902 by Teddy Roosevelt. It is upholstered in the flesh of Spaniards. Mrs. Kennedy? Mrs. Kennedy. Oh, hmm, uh, yes? Won't you tell us a little about the items on this dining table? But of course. The silverware is actually made of gold. It was originally commissioned by Herbert Hoover at the onset of the Great Depression as a sort of up yours to the rest of the country. These glasses make it much easier to handle fluids. This candelabra, or candelaber, is very much like a menorah, but without the added stigma of being associated with the murder of our Lord and Savior. Well, I'm sure the folks at home appreciate that. Let's continue the tour, shall we? No. Very well. Mrs. Kennedy, you've been an absolute delight. I'm sure that I speak for the hundreds of Columbia Broadcasting System television viewers when I say thank you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to oversee my husband's military incursion into French Indochina. Good night, Mr. Collins. Good night, Mrs. Kennedy. Many years ago, when my wife and I were flying out of New York heading home from our honeymoon, I was walking through JFK Airport there trying to find our terminal. I wasn't sure where I was going, and I almost bumped into a lovely woman wearing a somewhat familiar-looking pair of sunglasses. It was Jackie Kennedy Onassis, and it somehow thrilled me that I almost collided with Jackie Kennedy at JFK Airport. True story, and I wish it could happen today so I could offer apologies for that last piece, but all I can do is thank Amelia Scott and Ed Flynn for their merciless take on Camelot. Also, thanks to T.J. Dagadowski for being our guest. Go see T.J. and Dave at I.O. or find them on Vimeo, where a number of their shows are currently being offered up. Or eat a Sonic hamburger. Whatever you do, do something. And finally, just a song before we go. Here's the wonderful Jenny Bieneman with a song off her last record, heading slowly towards the beginning. This is What Would We Find. I'm Ron Lazaretti. Thanks for listening. Thank you.